CoinRow Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinRow Plus at CoinRowPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. I'm Larry Jewett. Glad that you could be a part of our Coin World Podcast here. We've got a very special guest that's going to be coming up a little bit later on. Plus, we've got a lot of information that we can pass along to you here as we offer uh, expertise on a wide variety of subjects here. And we're glad that you can be a part of it. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for being a part of it. The numbers continue to grow. And it's all because of you and uh, all the spreading of the word around here that the Coin World podcast is what you're looking for, whether you're a beginning numismatist, whether you've been around this hobby a lot longer than some of us have. So thanks for what you do and what you continue to do. And don't forget that we'd be happy to listen to what you have to say as far as some suggestions. In fact, I think, Jeff, recently we've we've gotten some pretty good suggestions from our from our listenership. Yeah. Uh, so uh, an episode or so back, we had the question from uh, Ernesto Aguiar about the World Money Fair and attending that. And he sent his appreciation for addressing that on the show, uh, but wanted to ask a couple follow-up questions. And uh, in hindsight, it, it it makes sense. And so I want to address those here. Um, he says that he doesn't speak German. How much of a hindrance is that going to be? And the second question is, what would be the biggest difference I should prepare for when I travel to Berlin? So uh, the first thing is a concern. It's not a major concern. Uh, I found the vast majority of folks that I interact with at the World Money Fair can speak English. Uh, some do not, but, um, you know, that's that's going to be a, a small number. And often if, uh, you know, you'll see people sharing tables just like you will at a U.S. show. Sometimes maybe somebody at that table doesn't speak English, but the other person sharing the table does. And so they call over their their friend, their colleague, their, you know, uh, fellow dealer. And uh, so you can communicate that way. Uh, there are, I haven't tried this, but there are uh, computer apps for your phone. Uh, I should say phone apps uh, that you can translate stuff, speak into it, and it'll display on the screen what you're trying to say in a native given native language. So there are workarounds for sure, but it's not going to be a major issue, uh, I don't think at all. As far as the second question, the biggest difference, uh, you know, one of the things we see here in the U.S., anytime uh, people are talking about show security, uh, they they make note to say that um, all sorts of displays and booth um, paraphernalia and the setup of a show can be a hindrance or a help to ensuring security. And the World Money Fair in Berlin is definitely a trade show with with tall booths. With um, uh, the there's many booths that, um, although I guess I guess they've gotten rid of some of that a little bit. But uh, the um, 
the major major booths the big booths where a lot of mints are set up where some of the auction houses are set up there are impediments to your sight line from a security standpoint that's a difference but they seem to have handled it well i mean i uh, they have undercover uh folks and you know plain clothes people watching uh you know in the security sense and folks that are very much um evident to be police or security uh with uniforms and and all that and in fact this year i walked you know down um down the stairs <laughs> heading to the main show area and and there was uh someone who was being um i don't want to say interrogated but uh held against the wall while uh the the security professionals uh took note of of his uh demeanor and um comportment if you will and uh so there there's definitely that's an element to it it's you know as far as what else is different i mean it there's the big difference again i think i referenced this earlier is you'll, you'll see coins just sort of dumped out on the table uh depending on the dealer and and the coin offered um that is that is a little different than what we see in the U.S. You certainly uh, don't see as much of the modern circulating coinage being available, cheap coins, um, and in the quantity, there's there's often a high volume as far as, you know, somebody who's bringing in coin sets from Papua New Guinea, you know, they might have a thousand sets available or whatever. Um, that's, that's, you know, it's it's a very in a sense, wholesale oriented, there's folks that come to the show uh, and buy these coins to take back to their clients um, wherever they are, whether that's in the U.S. or or elsewhere. And um, so that's a little bit different than in the sense of the U.S. Uh, the other thing, you're not going to see slabs as much. That's a that's a big difference uh, compared to going to a U.S. coin show. But there are some slabs out there. In fact, uh, I don't have the uh, the item in front of me, but there was a new company last year uh, on the scene that was set up and distributing their slabs and certainly promoting their slabbing. And, um, you know, it, it's NGC and PCGS were both there at Berlin and um, they have submission centers in Europe. I mean, that's no secret. They've been doing these events for years now, uh, but it is not to the level that you see in the U.S. Slowly growing, but it's certainly a difference that is noticeable uh, from that standpoint. So hope that helps, uh, Mr. Aguiar. Yeah, I think it's got to help everybody because just uh, trying to, you know, a question not asked is not answered, and not answered means you're no better off than you were. And certainly, he couldn't have been the only person to have those kind of questions. I mean, those are questions I would have had as well. So anytime we can pass along that information based on the experience, that's what our purpose here for the podcast is, to inform and to educate. Maybe a person is not going to be able to go to a world show for the next 10 years or 20 years, but still, this message can resonate and still will continue to, to carry on. So thank you for the question. Oh yeah, and and if I may, uh, another friend of the show at the um, my local uh, state 
organization meeting this week uh, posed another question to me, and I, I'd like to address that as well. The question loosely addresses this idea of uh, world coins bought and sold by the pound and uh, how folks, you know, what folks should know maybe about engaging with that space in the market. And um, I will say, you know, dealers and, and buyers of this often refer to it as poundage. It literally is coins sold by the pound or half pound increment. And what you will find is uh, the quality of poundage will vary based on the knowledge of the person who is selling it and and the intersection of the time they're willing to take to go through it. I bought poundage uh, over the years, and there's things I've, I've certainly looked through a ton of poundage, literally a ton of poundage, I'm sure, in my long time in the hobby, uh, looking for specific things, you know, I have found silver coins in poundage, not many and not great value usually, but a, a 50 cent or a coin with 57 cents of silver in it that I paid a dime for, you know, you throw it in a box and it adds up over time. Um, there's, I've found a, there's a shop in Ohio that I visited uh, for a dime. I pulled out a a token or a membership type item for um, the unfortunate, uh, notorious KKK. And, you know, the, the retail item on that might be 25 bucks. It's not, um, it's not something I want to trade in or, or do anything with in that sense, but it's, you know, there's things like that. I've heard other stories of people even finding gold coins in poundage, which admittedly seems far-fetched, but, um, you know, things happen, people drop stuff, things get, you know, I, I mean, I've, one of my local shops, they have a bucket in the back and they dumped, they throw the stuff in there and, you know, maybe sometimes it misses the bucket that it's intended for, or, you know, they have it in their hand and get thinking about something else or somebody interrupts them and, you know, calls them over and they throw it in and walk over and then forget that they, you know, who knows, there's any number of plausible scenarios um, but it comes down to, well, the knowledge of the person who's processing it and, and what do I look for? Well, um, because of my international travels, I'll, I'll look for money, spending money for my trips. I might as well take some of the coins back home where they belong and, um, and have some spending money. And you can often buy it for cheaper than the face value. So, and I look, I've, I've paid exact face value for stuff, but I figure I'm going over there. I want to have some money to start with. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's here. It needs to get back home and that's, I'm already going there. I may as well, um, help that, you know, make that connection if you will. Um, but poundage generally is, you know, the U.S. is, I, I guess, unique in the sense that we really have never demonetized uh, coins. So if you had an 1856 large cent, you would be crazy to, but you certainly could spend it for one cent in in commerce. There, That isn't the case in a lot of other countries. And so when you have coinage changes, when you have the economic upheaval, 
in many places, in many instances, people left with that money are left holding the bag. They're they're out of the money. Um, the most, I guess, most recent example of this would be uh, when the euro came in 25 years ago, uh, in a sense, 1999 was when they started making the transition. Three years later, January 1st, 2002, it happened. But those 12 initial um, Eurozone countries had their own native currencies. And in many cases, you only had a couple weeks or six months or you, you had a limited time to redeem old money and trade it for the new Euros. And right away, that rendered tons, literal tons of coins from France and Italy and um, not Spain, uh, Greece, you know, a lot of these countries no longer good. And so what can you do with it? Well, you throw it in a bucket when there's, you know, it's stuff that they made by the hundreds of millions. There's no, uh, there's very little collector value. Many of these coins you will find circulated to well circulated to, um, you know, covered in, um, dirt or you know the the normal vicissitudes of circulation you've we've all found dirty coins u.s coins in our pocket in in the till whatever that happens with these coins and in aggregate there's still a market for it i mean there's a market for everything in this hobby right but it's one based on weight and sometimes you can find coins cool coins with animals or flowers or the you know World coins are popular for kids to, you know, here, um, take a coin, identify the country, point to it on the map or the globe, tell me something about that country, and, you know, tell me something about that coin that isn't apparent or whatever, uh, just at first glance. You can use them as educational tools. It's just, it's just, that's just one more way that you can approach it. Some people like buying poundage and certainly, uh, if they have a good source of it and can stumble upon the random silver or the foreign exchange or um, the, you know, oh my gosh, I, I didn't, I never had a coin from Azerbaijan before, but here's, here one is, it, it opens up a literal world of opportunities. And what we found, like a lot of segments of the market in the last four years, the price of poundage has progressed so that it's, it's more expensive to buy poundage now than it was even four years ago. Uh, here in St. Louis, there's a shop that when I moved here, it was $9 a pound and now it's $11 a pound. Um, if, you know, if you can even get it. So it's, it's a fascinating area. It's, it's a good thing for a beginner or somebody who wants to dip their toe into the world coin space just to become familiar with some of the many options. I mean, you might find a cruddy coin in a in poundage and go, you know what? I want to go find a nice example, an uncirculated example of that coin. And yeah, it might be five, 10, $20, but that can point you to that path uh, that maybe you didn't know existed beforehand. So uh, hopefully that helps. I don't know. Do you have any questions, Larry, about poundage? No, because it was, yeah, it was, it was through poundage and by making the purchase of poundage through online auctions that allowed me to get into the world coin side of things and sit there and look through and sift through and 
you know, I don't I don't know that anything I was looking for, anything that I found was particular value, but every was interesting because of the terminology of the country, the identifying marks, the uh, different leaders or world leaders that were on the coins themselves. In fact, it was through the purchase of poundage that I was able to come across a coin with my birth year, which gave me the idea of trying to acquire a coin from my birth year from the countries that minted them. So then the continued purchase of the poundage, because I wasn't interested in, you know, the finest quality or anything like that. I was just interested in having one example. And certainly there were multiple denominations representing a certain country. That That's great if I happen to get uh, three or four different denominations from the same country. That was fine, too. But when it was all said and done, and I haven't made the purchase in a long time. I mean, the nine dollar per pound. The 11 is about right these days, it seems like. And the idea is that my country list now has 72 countries on it. So I consider that pretty, pretty considerable just by purchasing coins through poundage. So yeah, and and I will say uh, that nine to $11 rate, um, you know, the more old demonetized Mexican coins in there, the more Canadian cents in there, the lower the price you should pay for it. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. uh, I, I look at, and, and I bought poundage and pulled stuff out and I go, this shouldn't be in there. I mean, I have a bag of stuff that is like junk that, that should never have been in poundage, but I don't want it to, you know, it, it should not be in that for when um, it goes down the line because somebody else would feel cheated if it was in their poundage, right? Yeah. And yeah. and so it depends on that as well. You can often sort of eyeball it or or grab a couple scoops and move it around and you know just get a sense of what the quality is. Um, but certainly the more Mexican, the more Canadian and sense, especially uh, that diminishes it um, somewhat. And uh, you know it, it's just. It's just one of the many avenues that people can explore. So. Yeah. And I mean, I, I maybe I'm weird this way, but I get excited when there's a token in there. I've gotten some tax tokens in and mixed in there among them. So I consider that was, you know, not exactly an Easter egg type thing, but just the idea. This is something unusual. OK, I'm good with that. So, yeah, there you go. So. Well, hey, uh, now that we've answered those questions, addressed those topics, I think it's time to uh, delve into numismatic history. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. So this year, 2024, is a leap year. So let's go to February 29th to see what happened on this day in numismatic history. Well, one of the things that happened, this is another twofer, um, 1928, that's when the British gold sovereign was withdrawn as legal tender in Palestine. Uh, can't turn on the news without hearing about uh, news in Palestine. So I thought that was interesting to hear the a numismatic connection. But I think what's more fascinating for most listeners will be what happened on February 29th, 1944, because that when that is when the export license was granted to then Egyptian King Farouk. What was this license for? The well-known, famous, or infamous 1933 St. Gaudens Gold $20 Double Eagle. That will play a role in our This Week in Coin World history as well. 
And um, it's certainly been the subject of much talk on the Coin World podcast back in the early days and uh, periodically throughout. And it is um, a and most iconic coin. So that couldn't have gotten to Egypt if the export license hadn't been granted on February 29th, 1944. What do you think? I'm still hung up on the leap day thing. I mean, I'm just trying to figure out what year we'll have leap day, February 29th, on Wednesday, so that we can have leap day and hump day as the same day. I mean, that's just kind of like, but anyway, no, what you were getting at right there, a very interesting point on that one. And uh, certainly, as we're talking about world coinage and the world events that necessitate coinage and, and the things that come along with it, oftentimes coins get translated to be, you know, not interlocked with history in the way that uh, they may be, because in reality, some designs started and lasted for 80 years. The world changed so much in that 80 years that the coin doesn't relate to current history. But it's always interesting that, you know, when you can make the connection between historic events and, and the coinage that you can do that. So. Very cool. Well, Hey, um, I referenced the, this week in coin world history. So let me go there right now. We're looking at a coin world issue from 2012. That was because Professor Presley retired, I think he said, in 2012. So uh, we're looking at the February 27th issue from 2012. Hold One it, hold the, it, hold I thought you just picked another leap year. In that does happen to have been a leap year. Oh, okay. Um, so you you but, inadvertently did that. Okay, I got it. I yes. thought you were just going for a leap year, and I thought, okay, yeah, 2012 makes sense. Now I see there's a real connection. Okay, tell well, us about it. Yeah, um, this is not a big leap to say this was big news. Uh, the second story on the cover of Coin World says Smithsonian 1933 $20 goes on European tour. Exhibit tour of rare coin to start in London March 3rd. So uh, the lead by our esteemed colleague Paul Jokes. One of two 1933 St. Gaudens gold $20 double eagles held in the National Numismatic Collection at the Smithsonian Institution since 1934 is making its way to London for a March 3 and 4 exhibit, the first leg of a seven-nation European tour. The tour represents the first time that a 1933 double eagle has been publicly exhibited in Europe. Now, this wasn't the Farouk specimen uh, as... Many will know that was sold in a 2002 auction. Uh, we later found out that Stuart Weitzman, shoe designer, was the owner of that. He did put that example on exhibit in a famous display in New York for many years. Uh, this was a different example, but uh, the famed rarity nonetheless important in the hobby annals. Now, I do find it interesting as well uh, given recent, I guess, um, recent news, I, I'm not totally up on recent news involving space. Uh, you can maybe address that a little bit more, being closer to the source in Florida. But uh, William T. Gibbs' story in this issue talks about the 1909 Lincoln VDB scent that was en route to Mars. The Curiosity rover carries coin on calibration target. Say that three times fast. Uh, Bill's 
lead says the red planet in August will receive its first red scent. The 1909 Lincoln VDB scent carried aboard NASA's Mars rover Curiosity as part of a scientific calibration target um, used for testing the rover's right a high-tech hand lens. Sorry. So, uh, you know, that that's pretty cool, too. You know, think about the uh, sort of cross-pollination, the intersection of uh, numismatics and space. So then my question becomes, and naturally it would be something along that line, our society of late, uh, if you look down and you see a scent on the ground, there's a good chance you're not going to pick it up unless, you know, you're really looking that way. Some people won't even do it for a dime. I wonder if any Martian population would happen to encounter that scent and actually, first of all, if they realize what it's worth, but then actually pick it up. So maybe they have, a, you know... They can't touch copper or whatever. I don't know. I don't know any Martians, at least in my knowledge. So anyway, I digress and I shouldn't because I should go to the letters to the editor's page on page 15 and that talk works. about, yeah, one letter that we have here, which has nothing to do with Martians. It has to do with early Royal Canadian Mint delivery appreciated. Always nice to hear positive things. I just read the February 20th digital edition of Coin World, noted that the article on the Canada Polar Bear $20 coin stated that the Royal Canadian Mint would release the coins on February 27th. That's apparently not the case because I got my three swimming polar bear $20 coins on February 2nd. I don't think this guy's complaining. The only problem was that all these three vinyl flaps that held the coins to the display card were split down the right side and two of the three coins were in the bottom of the shipping box, but still in their round, hard plastic containers. The coins appeared undamaged. I was under the impression when I placed my most recent Master's Club order that they would not be released until mid to late February, but I got an email February 1st indicated they'd been shipped. They were delivered by FedEx on February 2nd, just one day after the new silver proof set, uncirculated set, and specimen set arrived. It sure is strange to see an all-silver Canadian scent in the silver proof set. A nice feature of the Royal Canadian Mint Masters Club is the free shipping in all my RCM orders. Masters Club members can often also order pre-order coins before they appear on the Canadian Mint's public web pages. The free shipping saves me a lot of money on my orders from the Royal Canadian Mint. That was from Lynn Marble from Macomb, Michigan. So hey, hey, yeah. that is that is one of my favorite uh, modern coins from Canada. Very affordable. It has a great design from friend of the podcast, uh, former guest Emily Damstra. So just throwing that out there. There you go. There's a connection there somewhere. There's always a connection in the podcast. Well, always. yes. I mean, when you were I, talking about the Mars rover, I thought back to our space flown space flown currency that we uh, talked about oh, almost two years ago now. So. Yeah, that was on a podcast. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Hey, um, there's a connection here between our last uh, episode guest and numismatics that's th that spurred a um, uh, the trivia question. So I want to know if you know the answer to that yet. Uh, last show we were exploring, uh, I mentioned a modern coin of Finland because our guest is Finnish and uh, I said, there's a modern coin of Finland that shows an American icon or monument. Do, uh, do you have any idea what that coin is? Wow. A modern coin of Finland? Modern coin of Finland. Hmm. 
I, I wouldn't think of any, I would, I would think it would have to be something related to a natural wonder. I think I'm going to go to something like Old Faithful. I, I don't actually know. So the, you know, you're, you're thinking good, but unfortunately that's not the right direction. Um, what would an American topic be doing on a Finnish coin, right? Right. Except this coin has a very American topic because the creator of this monument was Finnish. Ah, uh, okay. In 2010, Finland issued a silver, I believe 10 euro coin in both proof and uncirculated to honor the birth centennial of Eero Saarinen. Does that name at all ring a bell? Mm, vaguely, but no. Eero Saarinen is the designer behind the Gateway Arch. Oh, now it does. Gateway to the West. Okay. 630 feet tall, 630 feet at the base. The tallest monument in the United States. So... Um, I, I, I happen to have those coins in both proof and, uh, uh, proof and unk because, uh, you know, St. Louis theme, but, um, yeah, it, um, it, it's a, t that was a tough question. I got another tough question for you too, but, um, it's, it's always fun to hear about those connections, uh, when, when you do come across them. So there you go. Okay. What's the next question? So I am looking at an expert level question from the Coin World Trivia game. It's paper money related. Imagine that since uh, Professor Presley talks about paper money in just a moment. Uh, what three U.S. military officers killed during the Civil War appear on U.S. paper money? This is a toughie. I did not know it at all. Uh, but I think the listeners might just be intrigued to know it's a chance to learn Um and uh, it, it's it's a tough, tough one. I I would not have gotten it. So no shade if you can't get it. But All we'll right. find well, that out. We'll, yeah. yeah, we'll have to. I'll have to give some thought to that. But before we get into our interview with Professor Presley, the author of the uh, the book that we're going to be talking about here, I, I think we kind of glossed over in our interview uh, some very important facts. And do you agree with me on that? Did in 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 hindsight, did we uh, did we omit something here? Well, I think we just need to set the stage before the interview to explain that when we talked to Professor Presley about America's paper money issuance in the 18th century, the 1800s rather, the 19th century, uh, that there were 8,000 plus, 10,000, something like thousands, multiple thousands of different issuers and designs that were out there in the landscape. So it was a very confusing uh, time in commerce. And, uh, you know, Professor Presley does look, view the artwork through an intriguing lens, and it's important. You'll hear that in a second. But just understand going in that this was a, this is a massive landscape, as it were, uh, of artwork to consider. And um, certainly if you were around at the time, uh, you would have only been exposed to a small amount given wherever you were in a geographical area, but in a national sense, there was no cohesive or united um, design like there is today. So just keep that in mind as you listen to the interview. Would you agree, Larry? Anything else? 
Absolutely. Let's let's listen to uh, Professor Presley. The Coin World Podcast is delighted today to be joined by Professor William Presley, the author of a new work on America's paper money. In fact, that's the title, the subtitle, A Canvas for an Emerging Nation. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I really do appreciate this opportunity. We well, appreciate the fact that you reached out to us uh, regarding this work here, and uh, we did manage to feature it in one of our recent the recent issues of Coin World. But unfortunately, that that article, for those who may have read it, may have contained some misinformation. And I want to kind of set the record straight now before we start delving into the book and why you had written the book. How is the book available to our listenership? Uh, so it's uh, the listenership has already paid for it. Your tax dollars are, are uh, responsible as comes from the Smithsonian Institution. So you go to the Smithsonian Institution Scholarly Press and you can download it for free. Now, they only do a very few uh, hardbound copies, but those go to libraries uh, around the world. And um, the, so the only way that the general public can get it is, is to, to download it. And as I say, it is free. If you read the book, want your money back, you have to see the IRS. <laughs> Just get in line. <laughs> That's hey. hysterical. Well, uh, I can't imagine anybody looking at this work and and not being overwhelmed by it and appreciating the um, the scope of it because uh, you know you bring a uh, you're a retired professor of art history you bring that background to this. Uh, what I was intrigued by is um, apparently you collected American paper money in the fifth grade. Before we get into the book, I want to know how long did you pursue that and are you still a collector? Uh, yeah, I was 11 years old, and um, uh, I'm a Southerner. I, I uh, uh, Father's side of the family is from South Carolina. My mother's from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I grew up in Atlanta. And my entrance was through uh, Confederate currency. Um, and that's how I started, and uh, it then expanded because uh, I've never been able to afford much, and I got very interested in banknotes. And I've collected off and on my, my whole life. And uh, I also very interested in, in prints and printing and uh, uh, had a collection of, of uh, English 18th century prints, which I, I uh, most of it now resides at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, but I still have my uh, uh, collection of, of uh, banknotes and Confederate money, uh, which, which uh, Unfortunately, I can't enjoy because I keep it uh, in a safety deposit box in the bank. Well, that's a, a wise choice in that regard. So, well, that's that's cool. You bring this um, dual life, as it were, as a uh, art historian and a collector to this work. Um, I believe it was, um, I, I guess that led you to look at this with a new light. Why has this area been overlooked all these years? Well, I, I think in, in, from the uh, perspective of art history, um, I am very much a maverick and I may get in trouble, but uh, uh, with my 
colleagues, uh, but they have always sort of, there's been an arrogance of sort of a, a looking down on this, that it, it's uh, uh, it's all mechanical. It's, it's uh, a commercial endeavor. It's in fact a business. Um, and so uh, it's part of visual culture and it's not really part of art history. It can expire uh, to, to the role of, of high art. And I strongly disagree with that. I, I just think that uh, I mean, not all uh, paper money that's printed is art, but some of it, uh, to my mind, absolutely is. And the fact that, that uh, it is a, a uh, you, you've got teams of people working on it, that doesn't uh, uh, rule it out for me. I mean, if you make a great film, uh, yeah, the director is is honored. Maybe the the uh, actors as as well. But that's a team production. I ever try to sit through all the the uh, names, the credits at the end of the film, and it's a work of art. Um, and uh, I think too the fact that every bill has to be like every other that doesn't preclude it. Uh, uh, to me from being a work of art that you you um you have the situation wh where um lithography uh every image is going to be like the last image and uh that doesn't uh, demote that from from the ranks of of uh being considered an art so that that i think it's a bogus uh debate and that there's only one art historian that i know of jennifer roberts who's really done anything in, in this area. And I, I just think it's uh, been a, a terrible gap. And people have to realize too that this this imagery, this is, and I'm gonna use an art history term, but is, is the, the most prominent iconography uh, in American art. It absolutely went to every nook and cranny of America. And these, these uh, notes were passed out in daily uh, transactions all over the country. And it, uh, uh, this was the imagery that defined who we are as a people. Um, and it, it is a national narrative and uh, needs to be seen as that. And I think that the people who were doing this, the, the artists and the designers, uh, the machinist, I mean, I think some of the, of, of the uh, counters and uh, the amazing scroll work and these things, it's all part of it. Uh, they understood that, and and uh, they also were part, many of them, of the art mainstream. I, I just you know, there, there's going back and forth uh, between the designers and and uh, the world of painting, and they were members of the same uh, art organizations. And so I I, I just think it's uh, we've had blinders on and and not seeing this for how uh, truly important it is. But by well, the same token, haven't uh, numismatists more or less taken the same viewpoint? They look upon it as something they, they I don't think that um, numismatists can appreciate the actual art that goes into some of these notes. And, uh, you know, so maybe we do need to bring the two worlds together. Yeah, I'm my... Um... Uh, and I'm a numismatist because I'm, I'm a collector, and uh, but and I think where we go wrong is uh, just a fundamental lack of understanding of the context in which this this imagery was produced. 
you really have to understand the principles of academic art. And we have lost that uh, in, in today's age. And, and uh, we, we've got to really recover uh, where these artists were, were uh, uh, coming from. And also, it's it's a big mistake, um, as some have done, to, to think of this. I mean, I'm just thinking of, shouldn't single him out, but a, a picture of, of uh, one book is the title, Pictures from a Distant Country. Well, they're not that. I mean, the, the, this, this is art. This is coming from people's imaginations. Uh, they are creating this work. And don't think of these as photographs, as pictures of the 19th century or uh, the 18th century. They're not that at all. And, and uh, it, it is part of artistic creation. Um, and unless you understand the, the fundamental principles of what goes, what lies behind that, you're going to miss an awful lot. I mean, I can give you examples of, of where people have, have just... Uh, misidentified things that are, are uh, really important images that have been talked about again and again. Um, one example would, would uh, be with uh, the U.S. currency. If you look at the $5 note of the National Bank Note series, and that has uh, is devoted to Christopher Columbus, and you have Columbus on the vignette on the left-hand side, spotting the land of America. And on the right-hand side, sometimes that image has been called uh, Pocahontas introduced to the English court. It's about Columbus. And the image shows Christopher Columbus introducing an allegorical figure. And that's where people get confused, historical figures and allegorical figures in the same composition, and that throws them. Um, the, he's introducing the image of America as an, uh, an Indian, American Indian maiden to Asia, Europe, and Africa. It's an image of the four continents. And we, we don't uh, today talk about the four continents. It was a, a huge uh, trope in the, the 19th century and well into the the, the 20th. And again, we've kind of lost that. On the back of that note is, is Vanderlyn's painting in, in the uh, rotunda of the, the Washington Capitol uh, showing the, the landing of Columbus. And I love that note because you start out on the front, on the left-hand side, Columbus is discovering America. You go to the back, it's the uh, landing of, of Columbus. Then you go to the to the uh, front of the right-hand side, and you've got uh, uh, Columbus introducing America to the rest of the known world. When you have a situation that combines a real person and allegorical persons, does that subject taking this creative license, does that subject currency to criticism of the art historians? Not in the least. No, it it's a criticism of, of the uh, numismatists, the people that don't understand art history. Uh, that is just a well-established, and I, I give an example of a Rubens painting in, in the book where you see the landing of Marie de Medici. And she arrives at uh, the port of Marseille and is going down the gangplank of the boat. 
Well, that's a pretty boring subject. And what he does, he puts fame with a trumpet above her. He has nereids and tritons in the water uh, beneath the gangplank. The allegorical figure of France is there waiting to, to uh, meet her. Now, this is part of the Grand Manor tradition. This is high art. Um, and so this is what's called for. And this, so this happens a lot in, in American uh, imagery. And what interests me again, though, is the tension between the European academic tradition and the American tradition. And there was a tension there. The, the um, engravers were following those uh, academic principles, but, but they also were Americanizing them and, and uh, changing them to fit their context. And you get people like John Musculus, who was absolutely brilliant in being able to uh, track down the sources for, for so much of, of this imagery, but he didn't do anything with that. How did they change those sources? Uh, what was their intent and meaning? And uh, if when they appear in a new context, often with just minor details changed, but it just changes the whole subject matter. I mean, that's important. Uh, give, I'll just give uh, one quick example of the, the artist I worked on the, the, the most is a man named James Barry, who's an Irish uh, painter. Um, Boy, I, I could go 20 minutes on, on how important he is. But he did a painting at the Royal Academy of Arts in 1771 uh, showing the, the um, birth of Venus. And then you had Freeman Rodden of Rodden, Wright and Hatch take over that image in 1834 and put it onto his build and actually sign it. And the reason he signed it is because he did adapt it to the new context. And he changes it. I, I should say that Venus is another word uh, in that period for prostitute. And so is this a figure of idealized beauty? Or does when it show up on a, a, an American banknote, it's been commercialized. It's part of a commercial transaction. Is this, I mean, has... Venus been compromised is, uh, and I've got a section on that particular vignette. <laughs> Excuse me, is is this um, a, a, a Venus uh, or a, a um, uh, well, I didn't, let's see, didn't use the word prostitute. But I have uh, to read the book to find out what yeah, word. Uh, sorry, is a yeah. goddess or a strumpet yeah. is, is the phrase. Apologize. No, no problem. Now, the idea I want to talk about the book and it's Genesis. Obviously, you had the idea that you wanted to kind of bring these worlds together. Uh, how long did it take for you to put this work together? I mean, obviously, you're quite busy with your academic careers and other projects, but how long did it take for this to become reality? Well, uh, I retired in uh, 2000 and and came to Atlanta, and that was sort of in the back of my mind, and, and uh, piddled around a bit. And then I applied for, for a senior fellowship at the, at the um, Smithsonian Institution. And those were highly competitive, and, and uh, I'm also not an American art historian, um, or, or an art historian of American art. 
Um, and but I got it, and that's when I got serious, and and that was about six years ago. And the uh, real race for me to get this done uh, was my health. I mean, I I uh, just I've I've had so much troubles in two and a half years ago. I won't go into it. You, you'll see it in the book and my acknowledgments. If it wasn't for the doctors at at uh, Emory. Uh, I wouldn't be here. And that's the thing about, you know, we've got to capture all the information we can while we can. And uh, and certainly that you have done that with this book. And uh, we can tell the the listenership, if you want to get a hold of this particular book, uh, the place to start would be at scholarlypress.si.edu. That's HTTPS colon backslash backslash scholarlypress.si.edu. And that, that's going to take you to the library page where there are other books, but um, uh, this book is listed there as well. But uh, did you have any surprises along the way in terms of researching this book that you uh, that you didn't expect to have? Well, you know, as I said, I started uh, collecting uh, through Confederate currency and then I when I really sat down and studied it, uh, just realized that even I hadn't realized what was going on and how complicated some of that imagery was. And I had changed some some fairly major uh, identifications and uh, also was, was very interested in the connection with the spirit of 1776, that in ways that we hadn't fully appreciated, that money looks back to the to the beginnings of America and and uh, the argument being for the Confederacy that they really represented uh, the true uh, spirit of 1776 and that the North had sort of wandered uh, away from the, the original foundational principles um, and the way they did that in the money is is uh, was very interesting to me. I, I want to ask um, how, you know, important, uh, I, I guess, but I should set the stage. Uh, there were, according to Eric Newman, there were more than 10,000 different denominations and issues when you sort out all the issuers and all that. So this was such a widespread medium. How uh, important or um, what's the I guess the place of of this money in creating the American myth and and this story of America that you you just referenced with the seventeen seventy six. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think ten thousand images is an underestimate, and um, it's just an enormous. Uh, subject, and this is where the numismists have been so helpful in cataloging so much of this. I mean, but the kind of work I did was not possible with, without having that basis. And of course, I'm I'm making new discoveries all the time as as to um, the meaning of of certain images and and uh, how they impacted the national uh, narrative. Um, but it, it 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 is a we'll go, go to the the subtitle of my book a canvas for an emerging nation um, and uh, it was that that I mean I do think they saw themselves as artists 
And they were putting images out there that were meant to transform uh, America. And, and this was, uh, um, and they were transforming and they, they uh, did give us a national narrative uh, deciding, you know, what are the historical moments that we are going to emphasize? How are we going to look at the landscape? Where does, uh, what uh, role does agriculture play in, in uh, our story? Um, the, the American Indian, uh, black people, I mean, all of that is, is interwoven into this fabric. And the vignette is the thing, the, the image. I mean, it's the, it's the part of the bill that isn't needed. My checks don't have any uh, images on them. You don't need an image on the bill, but it is in fact the most important uh, because it is defining um, of, of who that bank wants to think they are and who we want to think of ourselves as, as a people. And the vignettes grew and grew. Sometimes they were, were putting several uh, vignettes together to string them across the entire field of, of the note. Then you get somebody like Ormsby, who in my mind, um, well, he's, uh, the, 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 the people say that uh, rightly so, that he's actually was a very poor engraver. If you're looking for quality, uh, that's not him. But I think he was a brilliant man, very imaginative uh, and very difficult. Uh, but he saw the entire face of the note as a canvas and would put the entire image across, of, across it, and then the lettering would be uh, very uh, small. And the banknote that is um, uh, reproduced on the cover of, of my book, uh, that would uh, seem to be from Casalier, and um, that too is, is a way of, he, he gives you a map of the state of New York, basically. Um, and you've got Niagara Falls up in the left, you've got the Erie Canal, you've got railroads running through, but he takes established vignettes and uh, works them all around the, the uh, 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 note and showing you an entire scene that sums up the Commonwealth of the state of New York. I mean, this is very creative uh, thinking, and and I love the the uh, pictorial imagery and to how that the unit theory, as as um, Ormsby called it, actually entered into U.S. paper money as well. And it in the eighteen ninety six series, I think that is the high water mark. There are a lot of people who carp about how it was uh, uh, unsatisfactory in terms of the being too complex in the imagery, in terms of people understanding it, and also in terms of the smudging of the ink. But I think they're, they're brilliant images. And, and uh, one of the complaints was, though, it was too pictorial. Uh, we seem to always want to withdraw from that. And now we're left with this really awful money with, with just uh, portrait heads and a few this and that on it. Uh, very um, uh, disappointing. Yeah, the creativity I, is no more. Is what no, well, yeah, I mean, the, the bureaucracy killed it. And uh, it, in terms of, of the sophistication of the product, it, it's uh, an amazingly high quality anti-counterfeiting and all that. But uh, no, in terms of creativity, forget about it. 
I'm sure there are a lot more questions we have, but uh, we want to thank you for your time and uh, let you go about your business now here. But remind our listeners here that we've been talking to uh, William Presley, the author of America's Paper Money, A Canvas for an Emerging Nation. And as uh, stated at the beginning, uh, this can be downloaded by simply going to https colon backslash backslash scholarlypress.si.edu. And you can keep your credit card and your checkbook handy for something else because this has already been paid for. And and thank you, uh, Mr. Presley. Appreciate that, Dr. Presley, for the uh, for the effort that you put forth here and uh, the time that you've spent with us here. I'm, I'm looking forward to spending more time and answering some of the questions I have now as well. Well, I, again, I do thank you. And uh, of course, I get no royalties from the book, but if anybody wants to send me a check, that'd be fine. <laughs> that's your job, Jeff. I, get in there. I, yeah. <laughs> well, if, if I could get a, a print copy, that's, uh, you know, the good news is it's everybody can get the book for free. The bad news is it's, it's, uh, it's such as it is, is only digital. But hey, uh, thanks again, Professor. And um, we do appreciate it. This is uh, a great work. And uh, I think the Coin World podcast audience uh, should check it out. Well, again, thank you, Buck. And that was our interview with Professor Presley. Uh, great book. You don't have to go buy it. It's out there available for free browsing. Um, can't say anything more about it that uh, we haven't already said. Oh, yeah, definitely so. We appreciate Professor Presley taking the time to address this book. Obviously, the uh, the passion that he has as a collector and as an art historian is is evident, especially it's evident on the pages as well. So we invite you to take a look at it at the uh, scholarlypress.si.edu. We thank you for listening to us here today as we have enjoyed having you along for our podcast. Next week, we've got another very special guest, and we invite you to uh, join us once again. As Jeff has been beating out and beating the bushes and coming up with some some good guests, and he found a, found a winner for us this next one, that's for sure. Absolutely. But until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week. CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.